Welcome to One and Done TV. I am one of your hosts, Ian Hamilton. And I am his burnout co-host, John Polking. And this is the podcast where we review television shows that only lasted one season. Isn't that right, John? Yeah, we're either doing the cha-cha slide or just kind of moshing over the graves of these shows that were canceled before their time, or maybe it was their time. Who knows? We are to decide. We are the masters. We rule all. (laughs) But uh, we look at what they were, what they left behind, and ultimately what made them one and done. And this week, uh, Ian, we made it to 25 episodes. Look at us go. Wow. I never thought you would make it to 25, John. No, I thought I'd be on on a gutter, not in a gutter. Like, they wouldn't even fit me in the gutter. That's how messed up I thought I would be. The the clown from It, what's his name? Mr. Pennywise. Yeah, Pennywise. He's trying to pull you through the gutter. Can't fit. But can't no, fit. Stuck halfway. <laughs> but we decided to commemorate the occasion with arguably one of the most revered one and dones in TV history, I would say, Freaks and Geeks. Oh, yeah. Anytime we tell people we have a podcast that reviews shows that were canceled after one season, everyone's like, Oh, you should do Freaks and Geeks. And we're like, yeah. Do they say it like that with that cadence? Yes, because everyone that tells me that thinks they're like a genius for coming up with it. Or like, they're like, have you heard of this show? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Don't demean me. Slow your roll. We're also going to do Firefly eventually as well. So Exactly. Those are the two. And uh, although Firefly we get less of now, I think that's- I get a decent amount of Firefly. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I thought maybe the whole Joss Whedon of it all had turned people off at this point. I don't know. Well, we'll get to that in that episode, but we're going to get to uh, the nice boys behind Freaks and Geeks in a little bit. Uh, before we talk about them, Ian, what are you watching? I saw two movies in the theater in one week, and they you? were both comedy capers. What? That's right. I saw Confess Fletch and I saw See How They Run. That's what it's called, right? Yes. Yes. Which, okay. I don't know why it's called that at all because having seen the movie, (laughs) it feels like they just got that lyric as a title and then thought it was a good title as opposed to a good title for the movie that I saw. Mm -hmm. Um, That one was okay. Saoirse Ronan was probably the best part of it. Uh, Saoirse. Okay. Um, I'm the Irish one here, John. Sersha. I'm the one with an Irish father-in-law, okay? <laughs> How dare you know it better than I do? And then um, didn't uh, your dad think that you were go- going to see Don't Worry Darling? Yeah, apparently he's a huge Chris Pine fan. <laughs> and just because of his Captain Kirk... And he was like, oh, the one with Chris Pine. And me and Natalie were so surprised to hear him be so excited about Chris Pine. I don't think Chris Pine is that emphatic about Chris Pine. We've seen the press Uh, conference footage. (laughs) He does not look happy. But we had to break it to him that it was getting really bad reviews. So 
I do still kind of want to see it because of all the drama, but I don't know if I want to pay for it. I saw um, it. Well, you can talk about that in your segment because what I want to get to is the fact that Confess Fletch is it's smart and it's silly. It's a decent caper, but it's not too heavy. It's a really easy movie to watch, and I do hope that they make more of them. Um, it's like, it's not great, but it is fun and good. You know, there's a lot to like about it. Eat, but you could definitely just like be on your phone a little bit while it's happening. Whereas See How They Run was, okay, the production design was amazing. Uh, it was a beautiful movie, and I think it was well-directed, but it wasn't quite silly. It wasn't quite clever. The mystery wasn't that enticing, but I also can't say it was bad. Like, it was just kind of meh. Mm-hmm. Like, there were things to like about it, but there was nothing to love about it, you know? Nothing that grabbed you. Nothing that uh, shook you by the lapels and uh, screamed in your face that it was a masterpiece. No, it really kind of felt like a waste of Sam Rockwell, too. Did you even wear your lapels? No, I I left them in my dressing room. Dang. Missed opportunity. What have you been watching? I can proudly say that as of our 25th episode, I have now watched all 325 episodes of Below Deck across its OG series and spinoffs. Yes. Finished Below Deck Down Under. That was a ride. Lots of fun accents there. The chef was an absolute monster. And uh, the third stew, also Magda, had maybe one of the greatest lines in the series when she talked about how she was uh, dancing and wanted to let out her Latina side. And the producers off camera said, are you Latina? She said, no, I'm less Latina and more Polish. What? Fantastic. So she is like from Poland, Polish. Yeah. How long do you think it took you to watch all 365 or whatever episodes? 325. This is our 25th episode, Ian. (laughs) Nine months, I would say, give or take. I don't know. Okay. It was, I would watch it while I was eating my oatmeal. I would watch it in the shower. I was watching it when I had five hours to kill on a Saturday Wait. because I didn't feel like getting out of bed. It How was, do you watch it in the shower? You have hold your phone away from the water. What? Yeah. That is desperate, dude. Oh, I know. You know, at least take the time to unplug while you're in the shower let your mind wander a little bit my god i'm not justifying my behavior i'm just explaining it (laughs) you're a sick puppy speaking of sick puppies i think it's showtime five four three two one showtime In 1999, Paul Feig and Judd Apatow went underneath the bleachers to examine a school year in the life of a burnout, a nerd, and their friends and family as they navigated romantic crushes, crushing schoolwork, existential crises, and what it meant to just survive high school in 1980. Freaks and Geeks may have only lasted 18 episodes, but is easily one of the most famous one-and-dones in the history of TV. Uh, Ian, what was your first sort of connection to 
Freaks and Geeks. I'm pretty sure that you got the DVDs on Netflix back with OG Netflix, and yeah. that's how I saw it. I mean, you you and your dad owned the DVDs. We did also, but I think you got them off Netflix first. I and think that you're right. Was my exposure. Yeah, I've just always thought of like owning the show because I would watch those DVDs so frequently, and I could even like think of I could picture the episodes like broken up into threes, like because there were six discs and there were three episodes on each disc. So like wow. I could think of which episodes were paired together. But yeah, I guess you're right. We did rent it first. And it, I mean, it blew my mind when I first saw it in what we were, we were like late middle school, early high school. Yeah, something like that. I mean, uh, not to get to highlights too quick, but I remember the part with Sam running around naked in the school just... <laughs> killing us we loved that it is a it is a big series of moments which is one of like my favorite kind of hangout shows where it's yeah it's very character driven yeah there's lots of silences and stuff but there's just also like set piece after set piece that just like stacks up into creating this thing so yeah you know what the Hangout made me think of while I was watching it? I was like, pre-iPhone, that's just what you did. You got together, and like, there's one part where Bill's just like dancing to like a tape recorder, and it's really stupid. And I was like, oh, right, because they're hanging out. They're in one of their rooms, and it's like, what do you do? They uh, just watched Fat Albert. You got to do the rerun dance. Exactly. Like, it. It just made me be like, wow, this is what people did before they constantly had computers in their pockets. And really, it made me think a lot about I I have this fantasy of going to a flip phone. I've been talking about it for months. Only Natalie won't let me do it until after we go to Australia for our honeymoon. And which we got married two years ago. But, you know, COVID, blah, blah, blah. We're going on our honeymoon now. All right. So everybody... Everybody shut up. I'm going to enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> shut up. Shut up, listeners. I'm talking. Um, but it, it just made me really be like, yeah, they're hanging out. It's a lot of boredom. And it's a lot of like, what do you do when you just have free time? And what do you do when, you know, you are not the most popular person in the school? What happens when you have just like a select group of friends and you're doing the same stuff over and over again and you're just basically watching the clock tick away and you're just hoping that it gets better sometime as well. You you know what I noticed this time around uh, that I don't think I quite realized the other times I've watched the show is that the very first shot, it starts out with a jock and a cheerleader having a very sort of schmaltzy, dramatic, romantic talk with each other um, that, you know, something a little bit more out of Dawson's Creek or whatever. And they hug and then the camera moves down and goes under the bleachers and we go to the freaks. So they're playing off of your expectations of what a show about teenagers in high school are right from the beginning. And then they're being like, no, this this isn't about those people that you usually watch. This is about the other people. And 
it, it was a really actually the first scene overall cinematically was very cool and i never appreciated that before yeah you when you see the show in context and you look at that particular opening it it makes an impact and that is really you know sort of the core of what brought the show up i was digging into sort of the origin stories of the show Paul Feig and Judd Apatow were sort of comedy buddies in L.A. Judd Apatow had this overall deal with DreamWorks. And he was like, Paul Feig's like acting career was kind of spinning out. And he's like, hey, just write something. And he turned in this script for this pilot within like three months. And Judd Apatow was like, I love this. And Paul Feig, the big thing he thought about was like watching those high school shows that that opening shot is playing off of and. He just thought, who are these people? Like, I I don't know these people. They weren't part of my high school experience. I want to write about who is part of who I saw. And one of the, it's funny that you bring up Dawson's Creek because they assembled this huge writing room. One of the writers in Freaks and Geeks was Mike White, who we talked about in the Cracking oh, Up right. episode. And Mike White wrote for Dawson's Creek for two years before he went on Freaks and Geeks. That's so funny because all I could think of when I watched, when I saw Mike White's name come up here was, oh, he was miserable. He hated this job. (laughs) Yeah. No, he said, uh, when he said he watched the pilot, he said, this is exactly what I said you could do on Dawson's Creek, but everyone said you can't. Mm. And that, because he got hired after the pilot got picked up. And this series sort of came together, it seems like, from this group of writers that Paul Feig and Judd Apatow brought together. They literally for two weeks straight just told stories about high school and they put them on note cards and that's how they structured the series and figured out what, who would be doing what, what character this sort of thing would make sense for. And that sort of, I think, gives it this very grounded but still very funny and sad and sweet and heartfelt tone that resonates throughout the 18 episodes. And Judd Apatow is coming off of the Larry Sanders show too, mm-hmm. which has a very real feel to it, the way that that this show has. I think he kind of brought that tone along with it in an yeah. interesting way. And I do have to shout out, Paul Feig uh, was in a movie Judd Apatow co-wrote called Heavyweights. Foundational which, to us. It, Exactly. I mean, my grandma had it on VHS and I watched it a million times at her house. And it's actually a line from the show is what the production company that makes this show, Lack of Hustle Media, is named after. Attention campers. Lunch has been canceled due to lack of hustle. Deal with it. Thank you. I need I needed to finish that off. So... Let's get into the show itself, and I think the best way to do that is with some highlights. 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 So we can't talk about the show without talking about the characters. Uh, so let's start with the Weirs. Uh, the Weir family lives in Chippewa, Michigan in 1980. It's a suburb of Detroit, apparently. I don't know if it's made up, actually, but whatever. Dude, but they film in one of those classic California schools where there's so much open area. And you're like, (laughs) you filmed this in California. You did not film this in Michigan. 
But it does, like, I, I heard some comment from the director of photography who was saying that the direction he got was shoot everything like it's fall in Michigan and it's overcast every single day. And you do I, get I, that with, with how the you show do. is shot. Yeah. You do. It's not as bad as some other shows that pretend to not be shot in California, but it, it's just you don't have those open concept high schools anywhere else. Yeah. And before I get into the the cast and characters of this show, I think it's safe to say this is one of the most famous casts of a like one season show where this was everybody's first thing. And so we're not going to dive into like where you see them or what they have done because every single one of them has done something incredible since this show was canceled. And this was really their first big thing. Everybody knows Sam Levine from Kevin Pollack's <laughs> chat show. They love it. We all are quoting KPTS every single day. He, he fills in for Kevin Pollack sometimes. When he's off shooting a movie, Sam Levine is hosting. And we all know that. We do. But the Weirs are made up of uh, 16-year-old Lindsay, uh, played by Linda Cardellini. She is a junior mathlete who has turned into a semi-burnout. In the pilot, we realize that the reason that she has forgone her, her academic prowess is she saw her grandma die like on her deathbed, and her grandma basically said, there's no light. And that just kind of shut her out from anything that was really meaningful in the world. Super heavy for a pilot. She was, as the kids say, shook. A little bit. Not uh, shook, though. Well, I guess because he probably wasn't in the room and didn't have to go through the existential crisis that his sister did was uh, her little brother, Sam, played by John Francis Daly. He's a freshman who isn't really happy with his place in social standing, but is a generally like jovial, nerdy Star Wars kid. They bring it up later. Uh, the people that make fun of the geeks also are like, you guys are always laughing. Yeah. You, all, you look so happy. You three are always having a good time together. Mm-hmm. One person who's not having a good time is the Weir's patriarch, Harold. Uh, probably the most famous before the show, Joe Flaherty. Uh, yeah. Canadian sketch comedy guy. SCTV, uh, Happy Gilmore. The, the greatest. Uh, he is a sporting goods store owner who rules with like an iron fist, but in kind of a loving way. Everything is like a teachable moment for him. And somebody who took the wrong path had probably died in his past. Yeah. I mean, the very first episode introduces everything you need to know about him, where she makes a mistake and he's like, you know, I had a friend who did that. You know where they are now? They're dead. And he pretty much rides that line throughout the whole show with some, he dips into a little bit more in emotionally nuanced places and he's a good enough actor to do that, of course, but the character itself is the steady dad figure like that. Absolutely. And the steady mom figure is certainly Jean and she rounds out the weird family. She's played by Becky Ann Baker. Uh, she's the stay at home mom cooks, cleans, wants a little bit more 
out of her life, but also just really wants to be a part of her kid's life, too. That's sort of a big motivator for her. Yeah, the weird parents are constantly mourning the fact that their children are growing up and they're not spending time with them and they don't want to spend as much time as them. And the kids love their parents, too, which is a real nice, refreshing take on adolescence. Like, yeah, their parents screw up and We'll talk about what those are later, certainly, but it is generally a a loving family. And Ian, the next highlight, uh, I figure we should start with the first part of the title of the show. We should talk about the freaks. Yeah, this is who you meet under the bleachers. We have Daniel Desario's kind of the lead freak played by infamous... Played by James Franco, which I'll get out of the way right now, okay? I was in one of his acting classes. I guess it was a film class, technically. Uh, I was around him a lot in the year of 2016. Uh, He is a true real-life scumbag. I can confirm several things about it, but I don't know if it's for legal purposes or just because, like, look, you can Google it. I'm not going to get into it very much, unless I have, like, a good... Unless, like, a juicy thing comes up. Like, then I'll bring it up. But, uh, yeah, real-life scumbag. But at the same time, I will say there is something about the character Daniel Desario that I am able to separate from him. I think that's fair. For myself. Uh, The character isn't good at anything, but doesn't really try either. You know? And you can tell he's, he's poor. He probably was abused at some point physically or emotionally. You know, he, he's had a rough childhood. He's held back many times. Um, you find out later he's been held up twice. Anyway, he's an interesting character. Um, then we've got Kim Kelly, played by Busy Phillips. She's got a tough exterior, which is masking a fragile interior, mm. which you could kind of say for all of them in, in a couple ways. You know, yeah. they're very, the freaks in general, and this is a, something I got out of this watch again more than before was that they are probably the most emotional of everybody oh yeah and that's in general how life is it's like people that get their feelings hurt are the most aggressive and kim is like the most aggressive i think of them she is not afraid to scream at people and shove people into lockers she is definitely at least like the most physically sort of like intimidating of any of the characters People that act tough actually have their feelings hurt all the time. And that's what's so funny to me about, like, hyper-aggressive people. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have Ken Miller, played by Seth Rogen, and he's sarcastic, doesn't really like anything, and he's just always, he's always got something crappy to say about you, you know? Or what you like, or what you wear, or how you walk. He is always quick for the put down and never really is. He's funny in that way, but he also doesn't really attach himself to anything meaningful until like the end of the season. But right. And if he makes a joke, it's like everyone that isn't the subject of the joke recognizes it to be true and funny, but it bites. Yeah. It bites. Um, and then we've also got Nick Andopoulos, played by Jason Siegel, who is a drummer with the passion, but without the driver talent. And him and Lindsay have a on again, off again sort of thing going. 
Yeah, a goofy, lovable, passionate stoner. They are, well, they're all stoners, but they're all burnouts. And that uh, that's the one side of the coin. The other side is the geeks. And we'll get to those geeks right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. There is Neil Schweiber, not Schweiber, Schweiber, played by the aforementioned huge uh, Kevin Pogchacho <laughs> star, Sam Levine. He's basically like a Vegas comedian in an eight, in a 14-year-old's body. He, What a great it, way to say it, John. Really thank, well done. That's exactly you. right. He always has a quick little pun or some sort of thing, but when he's confronted with anything, he is immediately going to run away. But he always has these, you know, little lines like uh, when uh, the when Lindsay's throwing a party, and she's gonna talk. She's talking about uh, playing some uh, Black Sabbath. He goes, "Friday night, always a good night for some Sabbath." You know, because the Jews and Sabbath. And the way he holds his hands up, like waiting for a response and they really hold on this moment. And it's so funny. He just starts like squinting his eyes, like, please give me something. They really take their time with that joke. And it speaks to how strong Sam Levine is as a performer. I mean, it's like 20 seconds and I loved it. I'm so glad you wrote that part down because it really... It encapsulates his character so perfectly. Right. And it stuck out to me so much. And like Sam Levine's audition was a William Shatner impression. Like (laughs) that is the kind of level of this character. And then Sam's other friend is uh, Bill Haverchuk, played by Martin Starr, who is just seems to be so happy about the things that he loves. Kid loves Dallas. He loves his mom. And he's just so comfortable in this skin that hangs so awkwardly on him. He always has his mouth agape. He is always saying the thing that isn't said because nobody should be saying it. Yeah, he's just the sort of prototypical Coke bottle glasses, uh, baggy shirts, uh, Dungeons and Dragons geek. And he's got that thing about him where obviously had a growth spurt and got pretty tall pretty quickly and kids like that never know how to stand you know they're always hunched over especially because both of his friends are so short too like exactly it it just takes some people like that into adulthood to really figure out their posture you know what i mean yeah for sure so those are our main cast of characters. I think it's also important to highlight the romances of the show because it's high school. Everyone's crushing on everybody. We got Kim and Daniel who are this on again, off again thing, mostly on though for the entire run of the show. They are a volatile, uh, ready to hurt each other for any reason about anything 
sort of couple, but they understand each other on a very deep level, which I think kind of keeps them coming back to each other no matter when they start to stray. Yeah, able to hurt each other on camera and off camera if oh, yeah. you uh, want to read what Busy Phillips has to say about it. But yeah, uh, they're, they're a classic fire and ice relationship where they love hard and they hurt hard as well. Mm-hmm. Which I've had a couple of those. They're not fun. No. Well, they are fun. And then they're really not fun. The other sort of big couple on the the freaks, the bird outside of things is Lindsay and Nick. Uh, Nick is a hugely passionate human being and crushes on Lindsay almost immediately. It takes her a bit to warm up to it. But he, after he sort of flounders, she picks him up and... It, that is a much more sort of like tepid relationship. They are kind of figuring each other out. Lindsay clearly has less romantic experience than Nick. And that's only because Nick goes so hard, so fast. Like he serenades Lindsay on their first date with Styx's lady. Yeah. he. I mean, he puts it on, insists on singing the entire thing to her about her. Speak singing it, too. Like, he barely sings it. He's like, lady, you pick me up when I'm sinking. You're like, I know. Oh, God. And then he, like, puts a narrative between it two. He's like, well, they're saying this, and this is what I think about you. And then, oh, here's another lyric, and I'm going to sing to you again. And then I'm going to talk a little bit, you know, about how I feel about you and how you just fill me up and how this relationship completes me. And I love you so much. Meanwhile, Lindsay is clearly uncomfortable on the couch. Like she's surprised to learn they're dating. You know, she kisses him because she feels bad for him. And then he's like, yeah, we're dating. Oh, I don't know. We don't like to put labels on things as if they've talked about it, which they haven't. So, you know, Nick is creating the scenario in his own mind between them. Meanwhile, they haven't talked about their relationship at all for like two episodes before they start dating. No, they don't. Yeah, they. It's more like she finds out they're dating from him. (laughs) It's like this natural progression of things that never feels natural once for her, at least. Unfortunately, I can say I have been on both sides of that fence, too, where, you know, where I've done that to someone, but I've also had someone do that to me. And uh, love stinks. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Speaking of love stinks, uh, one of the longer sort of crushes is uh, between Sam and his crush, uh, Cindy Sanders, who is a cheerleader. He has this sort of unrequited crush on her literally from the pilot episode. And they eventually do get together later in the season. But at one point she calls him like a sister too, which devastates him. He is always there on the other end of the phone waiting to hear about her boy troubles. And she doesn't really notice him until she kind of gets broken or she breaks up with uh, a basketball star It's this. Yeah, I've been there, too. (laughs) I've been called a sister. Really good sister. Call you Tia and Tamara Mari because it's sister, sister time. (laughs) Those are the big 
overarching relationships, but the show is always about, you know, who's crushing on who, how are we supposed to get people to notice us? And also like what expectations do we have, not just as somebody that is pining over somebody, but like when we get them, what does a boyfriend look like? What does a girlfriend look like? These are characters that are trying to figure it out like in the moment as they are going through these relationships. Well, what they do figure it out is that if you make out before you've been dating for six months, you go to hell. That uh, is true. That's what Millie uh, <laughs> says, who is the hyper-religious best friend, former, like, childhood friend of Lindsay. Yeah, the, the mathlete uh, that has been left behind. Right. She, Lindsay's outgrown that phase of her life, whereas Millie is going in hard on both of those things. And hard making out with her secret boyfriend from Bible camp, too. Yeah, we never hear about him again, though. Because he's a secret. Ooh. Oh, yeah. The school is also, of course, uh, made up of teachers. The one that pops up the most is Mr. Rosso, played by Dave Gruber Allen, uh, who is the guidance counselor at the school. A sort of former hippie protested at Berkeley, but is now getting his keys locked in his car and listening to high schoolers whine about things that he knows the answers to. He may be the most nuanced character of the series to me. Absolutely. Because he starts out as the cliche guidance counselor who's being friendly and just, hey, I'm just here to be your friend. Tell me about your problems. But then he also is literally trying to guide them and be like, make smart decisions. He also runs out of patience with them plenty of times and snaps and becomes an authority figure, which is funny because he's clearly a hippie. And he's, uh, he actually says at one point, he's like, don't turn me into the man. You know, I'm just your friend, Jeff. Call me Jeff. And then at the end of the episode, he's like, Lindsay, you should probably stop calling me Jeff. Yeah. He's always, I like the way that you describe that because yeah, he, he does run out of patience, but he also revs himself up too, which I think is very indicative of sort of a teacher's personality. We have these moments where we are, I mean, I'm not a teacher. I've just seen it because my mom has been in elementary schools for the last 20 years. But we see this sort of like, I give up. And then the next day it's like, I'm ready to change the world. And he definitely embodies both sides of that throughout the run of the show. And then he also kind of puts some of his history onto the kids too. I mean, one time he really... He has a visceral memory of somebody beating him up and he puts that onto one of the kids. I'm struggling to remember who it is right now, but where he's, it's like, whoa, he's not that guy. You have to treat him as an individual, not this guy in your past that beat the crap out of you. Okay. Like you can't hurt this kid's future for what that one person did to you that one time, which also the math teacher tends to put on people as well. Yeah, Mr. Kachevsky, he is this sort of, he kind of stands as this authority figure, particularly for Daniel, as he's the one that has consistently been failing Daniel. Like Daniel has been left back twice, we find out during the show, and math is sort of his big struggle, and Daniel cheats on math tests. He tries to pull a fire alarm to get out of taking his math final, Mr. Kauchevsky, though, is also this 
uh, figure that is trying to bring Lindsay back into the sort of greater scholastic side of her personality since he is head of the mathletes. So it's a cool character because you do see that side of him where he has fully given up on trying to help Daniel because he knows the kind of guy that Daniel is for everything that you just said before. But he also is this sort of like, hey, I'm your buddy too. Uh, let Lindsay come back to the mathletes. You're going to be first block and everything is going to be great again. So he sort of stands as the the two pillars of that sort of idea of what a teacher means to kids. He also, you know, it's interesting. I didn't put it together until just now. He was also in Vietnam, whereas yeah. Mr. Rosso was clearly a hippie who was most likely protesting Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And they end up, together in this school and although that is never brought up um it is a dichotomy in their relationship that's kind of interesting i never thought about until now absolutely one person who we don't know their military history though is coach fredericks who for all intents and purposes is biff from back to the future some people know him as the dad from zach stone is going to be famous but we all know him as biff from back to the future He is, though, it's a cool sort of casting that you sort of put this guy who is arguably one of the most famous bullies in film history, and you put him as a gym teacher during the 80s. So he, you get the sense that he is this sort of jock figure. He calls people knuckleheads, but he... Also, we find out throughout the show is kind of a lonely guy who cares a lot about the success and like the especially the education of particularly the freshmen in the show and Bill and Sam, uh, especially. Yeah, I mean, he starts out as right. Former jock gym teacher relates to the jocks, makes fun of the geeks, doesn't realize what he's doing to them psychologically And he has to learn that the hard way. He has to learn some real lessons about you cannot just treat the geeks this way and feel good about yourself. Because he has his worldview and he has his experience. But the thing I like about this character in particular is that when he gets challenged, he listens constantly. Like there's one storyline where Bill prank calls Coach Fredericks because Bill keeps getting put in outfield and doesn't feel like he gets a chance because he keeps getting picked last. And when coach Fredericks finds out that it's bill, his response isn't you're suspended for harassing a teacher. It is, you know what? I never thought about that here. Now you pick the teams and we'll see how this goes. Well, you're giving him slightly too much credit because bill's the one who's like, let me pick the teams because Mr. Fredericks couldn't even conceive of the idea of solving this problem with let someone other than the best athletes choose the teams. Absolutely. But what he does again, when he gets challenged with that, the fact that he does say, you know what? Cause the thing I like about that is it's one of two things, one of two outcomes, either bill rises to the occasion and he and coach Fredericks realizes that his biases were wrong or Bill sort of stumbles and that's a learning experience for Bill. And he sees that like coach Fredericks, I think sees both sides of where that can go. 
which I think makes him a more interesting character. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, also he, Sam has questions about sex in the tests and breasts episode and him and Sam have such an amazing montage of him explaining a porno film to him and the birds and the bees. Only You don't hear any of it. You're seeing this conversation behind glass and it goes from Sam starting out with all these disgusting faces or disgusted faces with Frederick's like having this like deep conversation with him to all of a sudden they're both laughing hysterically and having this great time. And it's a really wonderful montage. Absolutely. And that kind of gets into the last highlight that I want to get into, which is the vices, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The show's relationship with sex, I find completely fascinating because most high school media portrays high school boys in particular as horny little monsters that can't keep their hands to themselves. What we see in this show is, yeah, people talking about, you know, going all the way and doing that stuff. But especially from the freshman side of things, we get kids that are like scared of what that next step is going to mean. And they don't understand it. And that makes them kind of terrified. Like I heard this, uh, this uh, idea from Paul Feig, where he saw this split between kids that are definitely trying to get older and kids trying to hold on to their immaturity. And you definitely see that a lot with things like the first time Sam sees a porno and he and Bill too. And they are both kind of like freaked out by it because they don't know what this is. And Lindsay, when she is confronted with the possibility of maybe sleeping with Nick, she doesn't necessarily want to, but she still kind of goes along with it just to see she doesn't end up having sex with him. This is what leads to him serenading her in the creepiest way possible. But it's these kind of, this is something that I feel like we should be doing, but not necessarily something that I'm quite ready for. I don't think it's the creepiest way possible. I think it's the cringiest way possible. And I think there's a difference. (laughs) That's fair. Um, But when they're watching the porno, Sam and Bill have this one reaction to it which is like being very uncomfortable. I mean, I won't get too into it, but personally, I remember the first time seeing something like that. Like I was literally shaking. It literally made me shake. Yeah, absolutely. I I did not know how to absorb this information. Neil, during when they're watching it, they're like cracking jokes kind of because they're uncomfortable, but Neil is having a legitimately good time. He's like, how would you like to come home to that every night? And then once it's over, uh, He's like, so you want to thread it up again? Like, he he, wants to keep watching it. He does want to keep watching it, but I also question, too, whether that's just him sort of being like, sort of that side of his personality. Because you also know that if he was ever confronted with the possibility of having sex or anything close to that, he would freeze up, I think, immediately. But I think it just shows that he's in the stage of his adolescence where he's more interested in it as opposed to like he he wants to watch it as opposed to being afraid to watch it. I think even if he's cracking jokes, it's because he's uncomfortable. But I think he is genuinely interested. Yeah, that's that's completely fair. The fact that we could show both sides of that sort of part of the adolescent journey in literally one shot. 
Oh yeah, is a feat. Is a feat and a half. Uh, also important to talk about the drugs in the show. The burnouts are particular stoners. They they are the ones that smoke weed every day when there's like a drug shortage. Nick in particular is you know he'll never say that he's addicted or anything like that, but he is very reliant on weed to get him through the day. And I think the other, I think uh, Ken and Daniel and Kim even, they don't need it as much, but Nick has this sort of, it really drives his entire social function. And it doesn't necessarily, it's a show that doesn't necessarily glorify drugs, but it also doesn't demonize them either. It just kind of portrays them as generally, especially for something like weed, what they are, a thing that kids do when they have nothing else to do. See, that's funny because I got a little bit something different out of it because I I think the kids that don't smoke, which are most of the kids in high school, they're like, oh, they're burnouts. They're bad kids. It's what they do for fun, which is true. But what I saw more so on this watch was that they are very emotional. They have bad lives. They're depressed. And they are in many ways self-medicating with the weed. You know, I mean, they're escaping their problems and they have a lot of problems. At least Mm -hmm. they, you know, at least they perceive them. Uh, I would argue, you know, we never really get into Ken's home life, but his dad owns a business. Like, he's fine. If somebody's really using weed for recreation and just like he's bored and generally uninterested, it's probably Ken. But... Uh, I don't think Daniel uses it that way. I don't think Kim uses it that way. And I don't think Nick uses it that way either. Like they're all escaping. That's fair. I could see that as well. And we also, they also, it's not just weed though too. They are, you know, drinking as well, which does, I mean, just as a highlight for the show, the second episode is all about how Lindsay throws a party where they replace the keg of beer, uh, the geeks replace the keg of beer with uh, non-alcoholic beer, but everyone still acts like they're drunk, which Dude. is... Oh, Talk God. about highlights. The, the shot where they get the non-alcoholic keg and then they're dragging it down the street on that little red child's red <coughs> wagons, one of those classic ones that you pull your little dollies on. Or, you know, maybe you have some baseball, you know, mitts and stuff and you put them in the little trolley and you're just dragging it behind you. And they have this name more sh- child things, uh, name more childhood things, because pretty, pretty dollies princess. and uh, uh, T-Rex figurines. Uh, you're I still personally had a dollies and sports equipment. <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, gems. Uh, we have, uh, remember everybody used to kind of have these geodes. Uh, there's a Simpsons episode about all these kids with geos that show and tell. Uh, what's another kid thing? A poster, maybe. Um, Crazy Bones. Bring to, yes. Well, that's ours. Maybe Pogs, right? Early. Well, that's more early 90s. It's not 80s. Could be like a boombox or something like that, too. I just... I love anyway. that you said dollies and baseball mitt were the two things that could be pushed on a red red, red rider BB gun. Um, a football. Yeah, a football. Uh, 
But the image of them dragging the keg like that, all I could think of was that beer is going to be so shook up. Yeah. And it is because when they try to tap it, it sprays on Bill and it looks like he peed his pants. Right. And then Lindsay's like, no, Bill, uh, it's it's fine. Uh, Sam uh, told yeah, me Neil- about your ear infection. <laughs> you called him Sam again. No, it's Sam told him about the ear infection. No, Neil tells him about the ear infection. What? Yes. Rewind the tape. It's not how the show ran. It's not what happened. Well, it ran for one season, and it was one and done, John. And I think it's time we take a quick commercial break and then give out some Dunzo Awards. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the superlatives that we give out to every show we watch. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be the freakiest, it could be the geekiest. Whatever it may be, we have decided to give elements of this show. They're just desserts. Each of us have two Dunzo Awards to give out. Ian, would you do the honor of giving out the first Dunzo Award? My first Dunzo Award goes to the biggest gut punch. Ooh, there's a couple in there. So I'm I, curious what you what you got. I don't know why. This one is what really sticks out to me emotionally when I think about the show. It's finding out that Neil's dad is cheating on his mom and has been for years. Yeah. Um, and then the sequence where Mr. Schweiber is like actively gaslighting Sam and oh being like, God. you didn't see what you saw. It was something else. And he's in a vulnerable position because he's... He's Sam's dentist, and he's like, you didn't see what you saw. Also, I've got all this stuff in your mouth, and I have literal power over you right now while I'm gaslighting you. And Mr. Schreiber has such a fall from grace. He starts out as, you know, the cool dad. He's watching SNL with them. He makes the kids laugh so hard, and he's getting them ice cream, and he's bringing them pop. And, uh, man... It's this is one of the things that I noticed on the rewatch this time, because a lot of my because I've probably watched specific episodes of Freaks and Geeks about 20 times and I've probably seen other episodes about three. I don't think I've watched the show all the way through from front to back in over a decade. Watching it this time, I saw so many things that were just these little great breadcrumbs that were left early on that paid off episodes later. Like with Neil's dad cheating on his mom. There's this one scene where the three of them are at Neil's house. Mr. Schweiber comes in. He cracks a couple jokes. And Sam goes, why is your dad home? It's like the middle of the day. And Neil goes, oh, he sometimes when he does root canals, he needs to come home to change his shirt because he gets really sweaty. And without the con- before, like any sort of notion that Neil's dad could be cheating on him. But when you rewatch it, you're like, dang, of course, like it's something that seems so innocuous, but they established that weeks before. Dude, I caught that this time too. It was great. It was Ac- great. And actually, the- it's not weeks before, it is earlier that episode. Um, no, this was the one that was like, uh, seriously, it was, I think, two or three episodes before that episode there was a different scene because I, I remember thinking hmm. about that and being like oh that we're on episode seven the garage door isn't until episode 10 
or whatever it is. Okay, whatever. The scene too that is one of the so are you thinking the gut punch itself being the actual garage door scene it's, or it's really the whole thing. It's he's a great guy. Sam sees what he sees, which is him hugging in a deep hug with another woman. And then he feels so bad about it and he has to tell Bill about it. And Bill's like, well, show me the hug. How, how did, how did he hug her? And they're like, he hugs him deeply. And he's like, okay, okay, that's enough. He's definitely cheating on her. Okay. Like we know. (laughs) And then they reveal it to Neil who doesn't want to believe it and just says, he lashes out immediately. He's like, Sam, you're just jealous because you hate your dad. And Bill, you're just jealous because you don't have a dad. And which is very unneal. Brutal. You yeah. Know? And then it's Neil keeps it. It holds all this information inside. He starts acting out. He's failing a couple tests. Uh, the first adult he tells is uh, David Allen Greer. <laughs> uh, David Gruber Helen. <laughs> Mr. Rosso, who at first is like, come on, Neil, open up to me. What's wrong? And then when he tells him what's wrong, does not know how to respond, which was such a good scene. He just raises his eyebrows and they cut away. It tells you everything they need to know. You're also burying the lead that Neil copes with this by getting super duper into ventriloquism. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the actual scene where, or the sequence of events where Neil, because Neil finds out that his dad has a garage door opener underneath the seat, the driver's side seat. And so half of an episode is Neil, Sam, and Bill riding their bikes around as Neil is clicking doors, hoping, like, hoping to get at least an answer as to who's this is. And then when he finally and his friends have left because it's late at night and they need to go home and he's by himself and he finally gets it and it opens it up and his dad's car is in the driveway. That's the thing that like kills me when I watch that. And that's I, it. I mean, it's a great performance by Sam Levine. Yeah. And um, actually, I love the actor that plays his dad, too. He's in a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's um, really good. So, John, that gets us to your first Dunzo Award. What is it? My first Dunzo Award goes to the best character journey. And that I'm gonna go to I'm gonna give to Kim Kelly. Wow. Because Kim was a character that when you watch the episodes like, you know, bits and bobs like I had for years, she's not very interesting, I don't think. You know, she kind of yells sometimes and you know, calls people a slut, and then we don't really see her for some parts of an episode. But to have the fourth episode be the episode called is called Kim Kelly is My Friend, it's such a great placement for that episode in the run of the show um, because it's an episode where we see Kim's home life, her mom played by the fantastic character actor Ann Dowd, and, you know, Everything's falling apart or around her house, literally, like it's been under construction for what could have been years. Her brother's a deadbeat. Her stepdad is, uh, you know, kind of aggressive. Her mom's a yeller. And it's not something, and it, the show doesn't use that to necessarily excuse Kim's behavior. It does it so that you can kind of 
it opens up it like it's a thing that like kind of cracks open Kim, I think, as a character. Because the first three episodes you see her, she's like dumping Lindsay's purse all over the floor of the school and she's shoving kids into lockers and all this stuff. But then she still kind of does that thing and she still has that sort of deep down, but you see her like actually asking questions about how other people are feeling about things and having opinions. I don't know what it was. I just really just watching it from beginning to end is, I think Kim is a much more interesting character than I initially gave her credit for when I first saw the show. And the one more thing I want to say about this, this fourth episode that's insane is that they didn't air the fourth episode in the order that it was supposed to be. They aired it, I think, like 13th or 14th, which is insane. Like, that to give that character so much stuff to work with so early on, I think, makes so much of the rest of the show and their dynamics pay off immensely. Without that episode, she is just kind of a screamer, and that's not that's not as interesting. So I don't Right, know. you I, need that earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What did you think about Kim? I mean, you got to hand it to Busy Phillips, first of all, because she was only supposed to be like a guest actress in yeah. the show. She's not in the opening credits. Um, she just had a strong performance, I think, the first in her first couple scenes, and they decided to make her a main character. And I think part of that, too, is on this watch, I noticed a lot more about how this really is a dude show other than Lindsay. So That's fair. Yeah. I think bringing in Kim, uh, not only, it's like Kim, Lindsay needed a female f- burnout friend. She's got the mathlete friend, but she needs the girl that she can try to relate to in the other circle as well. So mm-hmm. I think she helps in Lindsay's journey a lot. But what makes this show incredible and what makes what gives good shows depth is somebody like Kim Kelly where she could have been one dimensional. She could have just shown up and we wouldn't know anything about her backstory and she yells and she gossips and she calls people sluts and whatever. But seeing the why she does it and why she's like that is just a highlight of what makes the show so strong when it comes to characters and character development it's not just the very strong casting, which mm-hmm. this show obviously has very strong casting. Yeah, casting was the one Emmy that Freaks and Geeks won. It's uh, The casting was done by Allison Jones, who is has gone on to be sort of a staple in particularly TV comedy. Like, she's casted all of Mike Schur's shows and, like, The Office and a bunch of Judd Apatow's movies as well. So... The fact that, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that Paul Feig said he related to the geeks, um, and, but it was hard for him to write to the freaks. So what they did for the casting was they said, let's find interesting characters that can maybe fit this burnout mold and we're going to write to them. And that sort of shaped the casting process for that side of the show. And I think when we see how Kim develops and really all of and Ken and Daniel and Nick, too. We see that it is shaped by what the actors brought to it wholeheartedly. Yeah, absolutely. You could tell they were writing to their strengths. 
absolutely. I mean, the show doesn't change. I mean, I think it, the pilot sets the tone pretty well for what it becomes, but it does go really deep into some of their psyches and Mm -hmm. the why they do things and the nuances of relating to people they didn't think they would relate to, you know, I mean, Daniel starts playing Dungeons and Dragons with them. And even weeks before that, uh, what's the other nerd? Um, the like Harris, who's like kind of King nerd. He's always doling out the wisdom to the younger nerds. And he's very, Daniel recognizes the fact that even though he's King nerd, he's like, he's like, you know what, Harris, you got it all figured out. You're very comfortable in your body. You know who you are. You do your own thing and you do it hard. And Harris is like pretty flattered by that. He hadn't thought about it before. Um, yeah. But he's right. That's what gives him that kingly quality almost. That and he's probably like a medieval geek, you know. Absolutely. Ian, I'm going to break formula a little bit. Do you mind actually if I get to my second Dunzo before you get to yours? Oh, Be- my God. Because my second Dunzo award goes to Harris. Whoa. And I wanted to talk about him because he's the character that I most wanted to learn more about. He is fascinating. The, I don't know the actor. He's like the one sort of one of the main staples of the show that didn't really do much after the show left. But he is this. He's always wearing black. He's got this little rat mustache. He's got this girlfriend, Judith, who we see every now and then, which one of my favorite things, they're talking about going to a makeout party, the geeks are, for the first time. And Harris says he's not going because he's got a date with Judith and every night's a makeout party with her. (laughs) But he, yeah, he's the dungeon master. He is, uh, I love him as a figure because he's maybe only like a sophomore or maybe a junior too with these fresh hanging out with these freshman kids, but they just have, he has such great chemistry and he just throws these like daggers, like from the outside to just spice up a scene or drive action or do anything. I just, I loved every time Harris was on screen. I mean, when Sam is uncomfortable in the shower you know, trying to shower after gym, Harris is the one walking around naked like it's no big deal. He's comfortable with his body. It's just his, it's just the human body. And he's very, he's carrying on casual conversations. Yeah. And he's just talking about what class he's going to take next year, what foreign language it's going to be. He thinks it's going to be German. Meanwhile, Sam is staring directly at his penis. (laughs) It's just how Harris works and how Harris operates. And there's a couple like great characters that I wish that kind of pop up throughout the show that I would have loved to see more of in like a second season. Like, do you remember Maureen who I really liked as a character? Maureen is the new girl who has just moved from yeah, Florida. Yeah, Why doesn't she come back? I know, but that's the thing. She does kind of come back in interesting ways. So Maureen. Yeah. But Maureen has uh, this episode where Neil, Bill, and Sam are trying to befriend her before this uh, popular crew sort of envelops her, and they're, they're afraid that they're going to lose her, And but they all are also crushing on her. They're, like, and strategizing how to not let the cheerleaders, like, take her away from them. 
which of course is the the only solution to that, which Harris presents, is uh, to go to the all-you-could-eat buffet at the Iron Horse. And it's there's not, this great uh, scene. Crisp? What's his name? Gordon Crisp that presents that? No, Harris. Oh, okay. Harris has the wisdom. Harris is God. We all bow down to Harris. And Maureen, you know, leaves that dinner. And the next Monday, she's like, I'm going to go sit with uh, the cheerleaders at lunch. And we never really see her again. But there is one great scene where uh, Maureen is with one of the cheerleaders. And Maureen's like, hey, guys. And they're all like, hi, Maureen. We'll see you later. And there's this is like unspoken, like, we could have been friends, but we can't really hang with the crowd that you are. I don't know. Are there any other characters like that that you wish you would have seen more of? Uh, I really like Gordon Crisp. I'm glad that he, mm-hmm. um, he's the, he's the, I, I mean, it's part of his character. He's the larger, smellier geek. And mm-hmm. he's comfortable with that. You know, both of those things are genetic. He's got a genetic disorder that makes him smell bad. And also he's like, my whole family's big. Uh, so he's comfortable with that. And he knows it weeds out the jerks. And mm-hmm. once they, Sam doesn't even want to hang out with him or be his lab partner. But then because they're lab partners, they grow to be friends. And guess what? Even the geeks were afraid or didn't want to be friends with the fat smelly kid until they yeah. got to know him. So even they have their prejudices. It's one of the brilliant things about the show too and how they sort of introduce new characters and develop characters and sort of establish them a little bit more is there's no moment in the show where you know they're looking across the room and they're like who's that kid? Oh that's Chet. He once lit a soccer ball on fire and kicked it into Mr. Rosso's car. There's none of that exposition. All these kids have gone to school with each other and generally know each other. And I think when you have that sort of thing, you are able to entrench things more with these sort of longstanding biases, like like Gordon is uh, smelly, and so that's why we don't hang out with him like uh, Todd is the basketball jock. And so he's never going to pay any attention to us because he did this. We know that he did this thing, you know, months before or whatever it is. They all have this history with each other. So they're never introducing each other or the audience to these people. They're just other characters in the world. And I love that they didn't spoon feed us who these people were. They just let us see how the people that we did know interact with them. Ian, I, I'm sorry I hijacked your second Dunzo, but I would love to hear it right now, please. Well, I think it's obvious what my second Dunzo is. It's the Crumholtz Award, which goes to <laughs> David Crumholtz. Because he's got one episode. He comes in, he's the big brother to Neil, and he solves everybody's problems for the most part. But he just he's this energy. That comes in, Lindsay's really into him. He hypes up all of the geeks' egos, I guess, their uh, self-esteem. You know, he's this cool college kid that can talk back to the teachers because he can't get in trouble anymore. Mr. Kachevsky's like, I hate when they come back, uh, which is great. But also he's like this 
on a pedestal older brother figure. He's going to a good school. He might go into pre-law, but also he's kind of cool and real. And he's his own person and he's very confident and he's able to dispel wisdom. He does hurt Neil by making out with Lindsay, but he doesn't know that. So, And that's more about Neil's arc of being in generally a raw state than it is about him. So I find that character and the Schweiber family, I think, to be maybe my favorite arc. Um, oh. I would love to see more of them. I uh, I don't know why that's... As an adult, for some reason, that family dynamic uh, haunts me a little bit. I mean, for his mom to be like, look, your dad's cheating on me and uh, marriage is tough, but we love you kids and we want to stay a family and we'll figure out our marriage. And right now your dad's cheating on me. So whatever. Uh, Yeah. Crazy. I mean, it's I don't know. I mean, I get it, but uh I get that point of view of hers and it's nice for Neil's sake that when he tells her this, she doesn't freak out, you know, like that could have been a really rough scene to watch. She's more heartbroken that he knows than she is about the actual situation. And that is a real fine line and a, and a great choice I think to make it also their dynamics and the, the thing uh, again about the show and how certain things happen and the way that it reverberates out to other characters too. Like another thing that we didn't talk about with, I think the biggest gut punch for me, and it's actually one of the moments that I like, I was sobbing watching the garage door episode, not necessarily the scene where we find out that Neil's dad is for sure cheating on his mom, but it's the scene where Neil gets bribed with an Atari. His dad buys him an Atari. And Sam's like, well, Neil's dad's getting him an Atari. And they're like, oh, uh, the weird parents are both like, no, that's too expensive. We're not going to do that. And so after he goes home, after Sam goes home from following Neil on this desperate search to try to get some closure on this, Sam comes in. And his parents are both standing there and he looks down and his mom says, we just think it's really important to reward you for being such a good kid. And they bought him the Atari and he immediately breaks down crying and hugs his dad. Just, oh, God. They're like, God, he really wanted this Atari, but they don't know. Yeah. It's so sweet. And it's just so sad. And, Sam loves his parents so much and he's so like worried about anything like that happening. And you could just read that on John Francis Daly's face and it, oh God. Give me a minute. I'm good. I think it's sweet, John. Yeah. You're a sweet boy. <laughs> uh, now that I've collected myself, uh I do the Crumholtz thing though, too. The show brings in such great like one episode wonders that go on to these amazing careers. Like we've got Rashida Jones popping in as a bully. We've got Leslie Mann, uh, who is Bill's teacher. Uh, We have Ben Stiller as a secret service agent when the vice president is uh, coming in. 
apparently too the network wanted like Britney Spears to make a guest appearance. So they they dialed it back a little bit. But we do get these Ben Foster uh in a probably a very problematic uh role. Well, uh, should that happen today? Actually, John, you know, that brings me to one of my burning questions for you. Ooh. Which was, what do you think of the portrayal of Eli? <laughs> That's high. Wow. Okay. I. It makes me uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. I think that Ben Foster was doing his best to imbue that character with something that felt real to him giving his experiences. I think that they might, they, it's a, you know, as, he mostly pops up in the pilot. A lot of uses of the R word that uh, are used to describe him, including by Lindsay, who says something to the effect of, you're just making fun of him because he's the R word. And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm special. I'm special. Yeah. And then he goes on and breaks his arm. And that's, that's a gut punch. When that's he breaks, a huge gut falls punch. and breaks his arm. Oh, because Lindsay and, the way, though, that Eli fits into the world of the school, I found to be very interesting because he's clearly, you know, Eli loves Three's Company and he just wants a date to the homecoming dance. And so he's asking everyone and nobody is mean to him to his face, which feels more real to me when it comes to situations like that with kids that don't really understand what another kid is going through. Like we know something's off here. We're not going to necessarily call you like names to your face. We're going to put you in situations that make us laugh because we know about your condition. You know, he's a child with an undefined developmental disability, which I think Ben Foster plays with the greatest amount of empathy and absolutely realism he could find in the fact that it is so generic. Um, I mean, look, we all grew up, you know, with, with kids with, uh, you know, I mean, me, me and you volunteered at a camp, you know, with kids that were, you know, very heavily autistic or a down syndrome or, uh, and had CP and, you know, we love those kids. Uh, Absolutely. But they're different. And uh, that is what this show, I think, was trying to portray. And I think it did a decent job of it. It's just that these days, we want to write for a specific condition, hopefully from the point of view of somebody that has a lot of empathy towards it, and cast mm-hmm. somebody that is able to play it uh, Yeah, with, with that condition or a similar one. Given what we've seen with the rest of the show, I am fully confident that that situation would have been rectified should that show have been shot 20 years later. I agree. And especially given how much, yeah, I think Ben Foster does his best. And it's it's affecting as, as a performance. And you, do I wish that somebody who actually had developmental disabilities was in that role? Absolutely. But given what we have and given how the show writes to him, it 
it, it's played with a lot of not just empathy, but with a lot of realism and sincerity that to how kids respond to. Right. There's that. enough meanness to go to understand what's going on without going over the top about it. Um, no. Which actually this show in general, when it comes to bullying, I appreciate the amount of bullying in it without like the the only thing that truly bothers me about Stranger Things season to season is there's so much bullying. It's so overt. It's so vicious. And not only does that play unrealistically to me, it's just like, I don't want to watch it. I don't like bullying like that. Yeah. And we have to, like, one of the biggest bullies in Freaks and Geeks is Alan, who tortures the the geek side of the show. And there's so much to Alan, too, that is un- unveiled. The pilot, he's just like, you're dead meat. And that's, like, his entire character. Oh, you're so dead. And that's about it. And then I love that he, the the actor clearly needed to shave his head for something and they just say, look, I'm not the one that got head lice. And that's how they explained it away. Fantastic. But when Alan sees, uh, Bill talks about how he's got a peanut allergy. Alan, for some completely unknown reason, thinks he's faking it, puts peanuts in his jelly sandwich and Bill gets freaking hospitalized. He's in a coma. Yeah, he's got this... But Alan's got this great scene where he's like, I see you guys having so much fun, and so you can't die. Like, I was just joking, and I was just jealous of you guys. And that's probably the most, like, sort of, like, overly sentimental thing. But it also makes sense for this this guy who is just like, I'm tough or whatever. But you also know that Alan isn't, like, the popular kid either. The thing I love about the episode, again, where they're, you know, doing the schoolyard pick for the baseball team is Alan gets picked just before the geeks. He's not like the jock. He is, he's the guy that's just like, give it a rest, Alan. Like, who is this for? Right. It's for his two buddies that are equally jerks, you know, although they don't get as many lines because then you'd have to pay them more. Of Um, course not. So, Ian, I've got a burning question for you. Which of these characters do you identify with the most? That's hot. So I thought a lot about this because you wanted me to prepare. I'm going to give you a little list. I identify with Sam trying out a new look and being immediately embarrassed. (laughs) I identify with Daniel's ability to weasel out of almost anything. Ken's impulse to say the worst, most honest thing because it's funny. And Nick's cringy, moody, artistic temperament and cheesy romantic gestures. But if I had to pick one, I would say, unfortunately, I relate to Nick the most for the cringy, moody, artistic temperament and cheesy romantic gestures, at least when I was in high school to college even. Oh, yeah. No, I, I thought about this question too, and I, I, I am unfortunately a Nick as well in high school. My gosh, I have sent girlfriends songs about how I feel about them multiple times. Well, did you sing them to them? Yeah, yeah, I did. 
You sang when you got engaged. I did. That was nicer. But I, oh boy. And I sang from a musical that is essentially about divorce, which the irony of that is fantastic. It wasn't lost on anyone at the time. It was a, I, it was a calculated decision that I had teased out months before. <laughs> and no, I, I definitely sang to, uh, to Marnie in her driveway uh, when I was dating her. And I, I, I AIM'd a YouTube video of a song from Tick, Tick, Boom to a different girlfriend before that. Um, I wrote a love letter once and I sent it. In the mail? Yeah. You postage? Yeah. Nice. Handwritten. Good. Uh, which is tough for me because my handwriting is bad. So I even took the time to like really try to make it legible. Did you do that thing that we used to do in elementary school when we were practicing cursive and you would do it in pencil and then you would do like marker or like pen over the pencil and then you'd erase the pencil underneath it so that you could trace it? If I had a printer, maybe I would have. Uh, <laughs> I would have done the like, I remember in preschool, they'd print out the words for you and you'd just go over it uh, with a pencil and then they'd do a dotted line and then they'd be like, okay, try to do it yourself. <laughs> um, no, but I, I sent it and then she was like, Hey, look, that was really nice of you. But also like, I, what I really took away from that is she was, she said, she's like, you know, I've had guys like compare my eyes to the moon and stuff. And it's just not for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't know if I quite did that, but that's, that's what I took away from the conversation years later. So I'm I'm it's sure important. I said some cringe stuff in there. It is that just brings up a really I think another great point about what the show does is it definitely comes from a place of people in their 30s reflecting on high school but it also doesn't discount the emotions of the characters as they're actually going through them. Yeah, I mean in high school and middle school we related to it and then as 30-year-olds we are like oh, wow, this is written by people reflecting on high school and seeing Absolutely. the fact that at the time things are a big deal, but you're like, no, it's a big deal to everyone, but this is how it happened and this is why it happened and this is the story behind the individuals that hurt you. Yeah, absolutely. Like There are so many moments in the show when I watched it the first time in high school where I was like, why are they reacting the way that... You they did. Like, I remember specifically, there's a moment in the pilot where Kim like throws Sam up against like a locker and she like corners him and she's like kind of getting close to him. And she's like, do you like love me? Do you want to like be my boyfriend? And he doesn't like say anything. And then she goes like in your dreams, geek, and walks away. Well, she gets really I was close, like, like she's gonna kiss him too. Kiss him. And she's like, "Do you want to yeah. kiss me?" And he's like, mm, "Maybe." Because I, I, it's aggressive, but also he's like, "Do I want to kiss you?" And am I into you? Like, yeah, I could not relate harder to a moment than that. I can't even. I don't remember specifically because I I must have blacked it out. But I know that feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's rough. There's also, 
in terms of relatable moments too, and this is a moment that uh, I know Judd Apatow has brought up a million times when talking about this show, but the moment in the Dead Dogs and Gym Teachers episode where um, Bill is sitting at home and he makes himself a grilled cheese and an Entenmann's chocolate cake and he's watching Gary Shandling do stand-up on TV and he's just laughing his absolute butt off to himself and no one else is around. Like, I know Judd Apatow has talked about that being, like, his childhood. And I, you know, as someone with two working parents as well, you know, as someone that, you know, would make myself a snack, watch TV by myself for a couple hours with my dog next to me. Like, there's so many great set pieces and little moments like that throughout the show that even if it never happened to you, you can understand where that feeling came from. Always. Well, let's hear more about what Judd Apatow had to say about the show and why it got canceled after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Ian, Freaks and Geeks came to us at the turn of the millennium, started airing in September of 1999, was canceled in March of 2000 as its episodes were airing. There was a lot that went into both the development of Freaks and Geeks as well as the sort of cancellation of it uh, later on in its run that I wanted to talk about. So let's start with the executive level. When Paul Feig and Judd Apatow sold the show to NBC... The people at NBC were basically looking at it and they said to the two of them, don't change a thing. This pilot's gold. We want to shoot this script exactly as it is and we'll give you whatever we need in order to, whatever we can in order to let you sort of fill out that vision. And so they got their cast. They were able to cast people that, you know, And this is one thing that Busy Phillips talked about. There's this great oral history that Vanity Fair did in, I think it was 2013, that maybe we'll put the link to in the show description because there's a lot in there that's fantastic. But Busy Phillips talked about when the reviews for the shows were coming out and they were like, none of the kids that you are seeing in this high school show are pretty. And it's like, how is that going to mess up like a 19-year-old kid with their first acting job to say that you're not the pretty one in the room and that's what people like about it? Yikes. So they said, don't change a thing. I mean, you could say the characters because like, yeah, they do some makeup and hair stuff that is different from you, but damn adults, get it together. Right? So between uh, the pilot getting picked up and the series being uh, given an order, it got a 13-episode order. Um, NBC actually had a change of the guard at a higher level. Uh, their new president uh, was a guy named Garth Anseer, who f- found the series to be very confusing because this guy apparently grew up in a boarding school, which left him, as one article I read said, ill-equipped to grasp the complexities of public school. Oh my God. My jaw is open. Oh my (laughs) God. So we've got this guy now at the top of 
the at the top of the network at NBC who just like fully doesn't understand the show now. And so they thought they had all the support and apparently they did. Uh, the people kind of underneath this guy were very much like, we'll give you what you need. Uh, we're not going to give you notes. The notes, Paul Feig even said, like the notes that they give were to make the show better. It wasn't like to Metal. you know reach a demo or anything like that. The one thing that they kept sort of forcing onto Judd Apatow and uh, Paul Feig, actually two things. One, uh, they didn't want James Franco wearing a beanie too much because they wanted to see James Franco's hair because he's a handsome little boy. And two, they wanted the characters to get wins a little bit more, which is why there's that episode where, uh, you know, Bill, the same episode that we've talked about a couple times where Bill uh, picks the teams for baseball and the episode ends and he makes this great catch and everyone's cheering and they're like, yay, and it's in slow motion. So that was from the network. But then, of course, what the actual people did, Judd Apatow and Paul Feig did, was that was only the first out and everyone tagged up and everyone else scored. So that was the kind of push and pull that uh, the creatives had with the network. To be fair, I think that's a good note. And I'm someone that... I love 70s movies, okay? I love when everything ends and it's all depressing and the world's never going to get better, okay? That's my jam. But I think they were right. I think that's a good note. Absolutely. So that was kind of the executive level of things. Then we've got the time that the show aired. Ian, do you have a guess as to when the show aired? Let's say Eastern time. Hour-long dramedy, high school. What do you think? God, I hope it's 8 p.m. and I know I'm wrong. No, what time, uh, like what day of the week, too? Like prime of like broadcast. And this is NBC? NBC. Man, I thought it was Fox this whole time. I don't know why. Um... Ugh, I mean, I'm going to say Tuesdays, but you're going to tell me like Saturday or something awful. That's exactly what I'm going to say. Oh, Saturday at God. 8 p.m. Eastern. You know, when all the kids are home watching TV. So those were the first two episodes aired Saturday at 8 p.m. Then they took four weeks off. What? To, because the World Series was on. And then they came back with six more and then they were off for the holidays and they didn't come back until January. Even with that, the show had a base viewership of about 7 million, which is, in today's numbers, is a huge hit. But back then, it was frequently the lowest rated show on NBC. What do you think, like, a solid rating is, like, 15 million back then? Yeah. Yeah, 15 million is a hit. Mm -hmm. Um, They were apparently, for the first times, they were running against, uh, they were competing against uh, the 10th season of Cops. On Fox, and they were getting their butts kicked. They eventually moved to a time slot where they were competing against Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, though. Oh, no. At, like, the height of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Oh, no. So they saw the writing on the wall. What ABC Uh, show were we watching that Who Wants to Be a Millionaire came up? Clerks. That's right. Yeah. So it always comes back to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. So or Survivor was... or American Idol. Wow, this <laughs> exactly. time, who wants to be a millionaire killed Mike's Mike White's job. The next time it's American <laughs> Idol. <laughs> See our cracking up episode. Mike White is cursed until he won a bunch of Emmys for the White Lotus. God bless. 
the show aired very sporadically. Apparently, <laughs> Judd Apatow and Paul Feig made a website uh, to keep fans up to date about when the show was actually airing. But NBC never promoted the URL because they were afraid of the internet and they didn't want to lose viewers to the internet. This is from Judd Apatow in this oral history that I was talking about. They didn't want to lose viewership of a TV show to an informational website on the internet. Yeah, exactly. They didn't want people to know about the website. Uh, uh, Keep the people ignorant, John. That's how you stay in power. (sighs) So the show... Got picked up for 13 episodes. They they made all 13. Uh, basically, it seemed like Judd Apatow was begging for more episodes. They would give like a one-episode order and then a two-episode order and then a one-episode order. So they that led to the sort of, you know, 18 episodes that we ended up with. But the show was canceled after I think 14 aired um, on the network. Meanwhile, they put their basically, as they said, their blood, sweat, and tears into editing the last four episodes because they just didn't want it to be over. This was a particularly tough time, it seemed like, for everyone involved. Um, As they were filming the last episodes, Jason Segel talked about how they could tell the writing was on the wall because by the end of the show's run, the sort of craft service table was basically like cold cuts and (laughs) half-open granola bars. And I've been on those sets. Yeah. And Paul Feig's mom died. And then two days later, the show got canceled. And meanwhile, Judd Apatow is like screaming so hard at executives or like so upset about the situation that he herniated a disc while they were in post-production. How would you like to come home to that? Ugh. He, yeah, it just seemed like it really, like, and Judd Apatow's thing was just like, I just didn't want these people to not have jobs anymore because I was really proud of what we were making. And after the show got canceled, I guess they aired the last four episodes to a sold out crowd at like the Museum of uh, Television Sciences or something like that in LA. Wow. And they got to see the last four episodes with like a full room of fans, which was seemed to be kind of a bittersweet ending uh, of that. And yeah, MTV also offered to pick up the show after it got canceled, but the budget for this show was super high. It's a single camera show with arguably one of the greatest like soundtracks two of a TV show. You know what's even more impressive than the soundtrack ex- itself, which is incredible. You know, they got The Who, they got... Um, An entire episode of The Who music. Right. Too. They've got gra- a great soundtrack, but more than that, a lot of shows with great soundtracks did not... The soundtrack didn't always make it to DVDs or to syndication because the way that they bought the rights to the song, they were it, it wasn't bought in perpetuity. Yeah, and it was to be too expensive to get the rights again too, which is what actually stalled the both the DVD release of Freaks and Geeks and the streaming rights years later too. Was to get that all that music back because of the deal that was made initially. So, how did this show become such a phenomenon later? Was it the DVDs and then the streaming? I mean, simple as that. Yeah, the DVDs were a huge 
part of that. And the streaming certainly helped. I mean, when you've got, so the show ended in 2000. We have four years later, Judd Apatow comes out with 40-Year-Old Virgin. And four or five years later, he comes out with 40-Year-Old Virgin, which, and Anchorman. Anchorman, yeah. And when you have, and this sort of reinvigorates like everyone involves career and even before that, too, I mean, Linda Cardellini did Scooby-Doo and became a bigger household right. name there. Right, Franco was in Spider-Man. Um, Seth Rogen had a writing career going. Yeah, apparently he started writing super bad on the set of Freaks and Geeks. And the all of this sort of came together later on when people were like, hey, there's this show out there that got amazing reviews, won a freaking Emmy, has all these people that I love both in front of and behind the camera. That just introduced more people to it. People actually watched it. They loved it. Um, and that's how it kind of got onto this. It gave it this uh, afterlife after the fact. And it did have a very passionate fan base of those like 7 million people that were watching it at the time too that kind of kept that conversation going. But it does seem to be the DVD and the streaming side of things that really made it not just a wonderful show, but a legendary one at that. Well, John, that brings us to the question that we ask each other after every episode, because that is what we do on this show. Sure, we do the research and sure, we review it. But ultimately, what is this about? We decide if we would renew the show or if we would cancel the show. And that is what it all comes down to. No matter how obvious it may seem from the discussion, and generally we try to hide the answer so that it's not so obvious until we come to this part of the show. And John, I ask you the question, would you renew? No. What? Nah, I'm just kidding. Yeah, of course. Of course I would. This is one of, when I was rewatching this show for this episode, I came to the realization that this isn't just one of the greatest one season wonders that has ever existed. It's probably one of the best TV shows that has ever been on TV. They're from front to back, not just the dialogue, not just the characters, the way that it's constructed, the way that it unfolds, it is exciting. It is hilarious. It is about as earnest as anything that you will ever see. And it it's everything. It's just everything. So with that, Ian, would you renew? I would, obviously. We all know this, that we love this show. I don't understand anyone that wouldn't love this show. And I don't know if I've met Truly. anyone that doesn't. Um, Except apparently if you went to private school. <laughs> yeah, you rich kids. Uh, or underprivileged kids with a scholarship of some kind, perhaps. <laughs> There's got to be a few of those um, going to boarding school. But yeah, I ditto everything you say. And I just want to shout out the fact that in our proto version of One and Done TV, which was called One and Done Podcast, which we made in 2015, this was the 10th episode we did. And it was the guest, special guest on that show 
was Natalie O'Sullivan, who is now Natalie O'Sullivan Hamilton, my wife. And we were only friends at the time. Oh, that's nice. I'd like to go back to that. It, we probably had similar thoughts. She sent but me, these ones are better. She actually found her old notes and sent them to me, and I did not read them. So Aww. I didn't have time. But I appreciate the fact that she saved them. Oh, and she might That's be sweet. in the other room hearing that, so I hope she did. Cute. Cute, cute, cute. Uh, there's a couple of things that happened in the show that I love that we have not brought up. One of them is the best mascot design, <laughs> which of course goes to the McKinley High Norseman. And the... Okay, I can't describe this Viking head, but it is huge with the biggest eyes you've ever seen and the biggest smile you've ever seen. Um, it was originally inhabited by a one-episode character played by Shia LaBeouf. Uh, Sam then goes on to be the mascot. I, again, trying to describe this would not do it justice. So I would just say Google it. It is one of the funniest just costume designs I think I've ever seen. On a more sincere note, I do really quick want to talk about the second to last episode with uh, with Amy and uh, Ken, with Ken and his girlfriend. Um, this was a really interesting episode. It actually, uh, I think, won, the, won a, a separate award that wasn't an Emmy for its portrayal of uh, people with who are born with ambiguous genitalia. It is an episode where Ken, Seth Rogen's character, finds out that his girlfriend uh, was born with uh, both sex organs and has since, you know, had surgeries. And she is, as she says it, 100% girl. Uh, and it is him kind of trying to understand that news and what it means to him. Well, it's funny to me that his reaction to it isn't like I'm freaked out about you as a person in your circumstance, he's freaked out being like, does this mean I'm gay? You know, yeah. that's what he focuses on, which is a pretty strange reaction, you know? It is a strange reaction, but again, it's it's something that I can sympathize with in terms of like, you. he never thought that this would ever be like a thing that he would encounter as like a, as in his circumstances and like he's truly it's an episode about him like understanding his reaction and trying to say the like there's this one line that he has after she tells him uh where he says tell me what you want me to say because clearly you have something in mind and that is like very indicative i think of how he processes it like he wants to say the right thing, he wants to do the right thing, but he just there's something holding him back. You think it's until indicative? The end of the I think it's evocative. Uh, cool. And that's a correct way of saying that. Uh, yeah. What's interesting to me is that he makes it all about him, and it's he doesn't have any problem with her, you know, or with with that. It's just he has an existential crisis about it, and that's what basically divides their relationship. And breaks up what could have otherwise been a, a healthy, budding, flowering high school relationship, and it just gets it gets too weird uh, for both Absolutely. of them. But it's not yeah. really about her, which is interesting. Yeah, 
one thing too that I found in my research was that the conversation where she tells him about you know how she was born uh, was almost entirely improvised and then written to be improvised in order to make it feel as sort of real as it could have, which I thought was another example of how the creative team was just trying to tell the most honest version of the story that they were telling, and it paid off exceptionally well. Um, I guess as long as we're doing just a couple highlights here, I do want to point out one of my favorite moments in the show is when they're in sex ed class, and one of the anonymous questions is, if you have sex with a pregnant woman, can the baby get poked? And Mr. Fredericks is like, no, of course not. That's impossible. But there's a kid in the class who happens to have an eye patch on. And he's like, oh, except for that kid, you know. But uh, <laughs> It's amazing. It's such a good joke. I think my favorite just like joke joke, too, is uh, there's an assembly in the second episode where they're doing these like improvised sort of uh, – after school, especially moments about drinking and driving and stuff. And uh, the the improvised players are, there's this, Mr. Rosso comes out and he's like, can I get a suggestion of a party? And one of the kids goes, a sex party. And Mr. Rosso goes, okay, I believe I heard birthday, birthday party. party. <laughs> Classic. Amazing. Ian, where can people find us? You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at one and done TV. You can email us one and done pot at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts, your feedback. Uh, give us some show ideas. What do you want to listen to us talk about what we've seen? What, what show do you want us to watch? Okay. We will prioritize it over our own very long list that we have. Um, you can Venmo me money at Hamill Chin because I think it's funny to put that out there. And I've gotten a couple people have sent me 69 cents, which I think is funny. Um, you could send me more than that, though. Uh, and as always, buy yourself a large pan scraper. It will make your doing the dishes experience exponentially better. Watch How To with John Wilson on HBO Max and watch Freaks and Geeks on Paramount Plus or wherever you can find it streaming because this show is special. And I believe with that, um, we have gotten on the bus and we actually are going to go to Ann Arbor for the Academic Summit. We are not going to go in the van with the deadheads like this show did. Like We're not doing it. Man, season two would have been interesting. Lindsay after the dead concerts changed forever as we all are by this show brought to you by lack of hustle media 